to perfection no 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 help me out yeah you know you gotta help me out yeah don't you put me on the back burner you know you gotta help me out when there's nowhere else to run is there room for one more time the changes ain't changing me the cold-hearted boy I used to be. Hi guys. I'm not so. I've got soul, but damn it, I'm not a soldier. Uh, full disclosure. Uh, I've done a lot of content production today, so I'm kind of a little tap. I probably wouldn't have done a stream today if I hadn't missed Monday and Tuesday. I try to do like three a week. If I'm not letting people know ahead of time, I'm not going to be doing them. So I felt like I didn't want to skip again, but I'm, I don't really know what to say. So I might have to. This is going to be a loose one. This is going to be uh, another low-key uh, vibe stream. So fair warning ahead of time on that. Don't expect a lot of verbal fireworks here. I'm just trying to kind of cool down. Uh, it sure as shit beats working, though, I'll say that. There's no question about it. Uh, I saw the Bob Odenkirk trailer, and I had heard of this movie before. I, I've heard, like, for a year now that this movie was being made, because I'm reading a thing where Bob Odenkirk was talking about how he was getting trained by the John Wick guys. And I thought it was really exciting. And I saw the trailer, and it's just John Wick. It's what if, basically, it's what if John Wick's wife hadn't died a year after they got married? What if she'd lived and they'd had kids, and then, like, after he got kind of old, uh, he had to come back? Like, that's the only difference. Like, everything else, beat for beat, and style and aesthetics looks basically the same. And that was disappointing. I'll still see it. I love Bob Odenkirk. I obviously have loved him since, fuck, Mr. Show, since the Ben Stiller Show, which I'm old enough to remember and to have loved watching as a kid for the one glorious season that it ran. Man, early 90s Fox was the best. I would say that early 90s Sunday night on Fox is the best network television has been for comedy. Because you had... Anchoring, you had Married with Children. And then you had uh, si Simpsons there for sometimes. It switched to Thursday, but it's it was with Sunday. It was started on Sundays. Uh, but then you had shit that didn't do nearly as well, didn't last as long as those shows. But in my opinion, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a kid, things are funnier. Uh, but in my opinion, hold up and help shape my comic pers perspective in a lot of ways. Get a Life with Chris Elliott. Fantastic show. Uh, ben Stiller's show, which 
I don't think holds up as well just because so much of it is based on direct parodies of stuff that was happening at the time, like specific TV shows and specific commercials. It's not going to land the same way. But still, you can't beat that cast. You can't beat uh, who ended up being on that show. I mean, that's where fucking Bob and David met, literally, and then helped make Mr. Show, the greatest American sketch comedy show of all time, and in the running for, it's like, it's in the top conversation, top two or three, ever. I mean, I don't know, if it's not Mr. Show, Monty Python, and Kids in the Hall, I, who's, what's a fourth competitor there? Uh, and what else? Oh, they also had the, oh, they had crazy high concept shit that might not be funny. You might not look back on it and think it was funny. But compared to the other shows on TV, it was interesting and, and different. Like Herman's Head, which was ripped off for uh, Inside Out. Any, I don't know if anybody else saw Inside Out and was outraged at how horrifyingly they had ripped off the show Herman's Head, which was a show that it was a sitcom. And the premise was there's a guy, Herman, and he's trying to make it in the big city in publishing. But you cut back to him in his head uh, uh, between his like parts of his consciousness and, and it was uh, the horny fat guy who was his lust there was the nerd in glasses who was his intellect, there was the twerpy nervous guy who was anxiety and then the hippie lady who was uh, his uh, emotions and like sensitivity then there is a show called Whoops, which I was describing someone this show last weekend, and they couldn't believe this was a real show. It was essentially Gilligan's Island, but the gimmick was instead of them being on a desert island, they were the last people to survive an accidental nuclear holocaust. And they all lived in a house together in a blasted wasteland. And this was a multi-camera sitcom with a laugh track. And there was the one episode I saw as a little kid I still remember uh, where... Uh, Santa Claus shows up and he's got survivor's guilt because uh, the elves, the reindeer, and Mrs. Claus were all killed in the nuclear blast. I'm seeing uh, for other best sit, uh, sketch comedy shows, Chappelle Show. Chappelle Show is definitely in the running, I'm sure. I think it could probably take out, honestly, replace Monty Python with the Chappelle Show at this point. Comedy has a shelf life. Monty Python's shelf life is over. The Chappelle Show is still funny. So throw that out there. Chappelle Show. Uh, or maybe, yeah, Chappelle Show, Mr. Show, Kids in the Hall. I think you should leave. Might be in the discussion, but you'd need a lot more episodes. There's literally six 20-minute episodes. That's not enough. Audio is low. God damn it. Oh, fuck me. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I've got the thing turned up. I don't know what to do. You want me to put it farther up here? State was okay. State's not as good as Ben Stiller's show. Mad TV is pretty good. And Mad TV, when you look back on it, is it was definitely... Uh, it was willing to go places that you can't go anymore, so it has that kind of uh, going for it just as a curio. But... Sketch by sketch, there's a lot of dog shit on Mad, Mad TV. Come on. Keen Peel, I would say, is probably better than The Chappelle Show as a, like, on a sketch by sketch basis. Because, and the premises are very crisp, but it's also a little airless. 
it's a little over-intellectualized in a way that the Chappelle show isn't and that makes the Chappelle show more viscerally connecting. But anyway, this is all a way of saying I love bad Bob Odenkirk like nobody's business, but watching that trailer and just seeing him just do the Keanu thing with the same guns and the same choreography and the same, even the same uh, sheen and the same lighting schemes. And at one point, at the thing where he gets the guns out that have been kept in the, in the bunker, and he's got a bunch of gold bars, those are just like the coins from, it's like, God... Once they figured out that they could replace squibs with choreography and, and then made uh, John Wick the exemplar of that, they just decided, like with all things, they were just going to monopolize the entire action space and they're going to turn everything into fucking John Wick. So I'm a little disappointed in the trailer, but I will certainly see it. Although when I saw at the end of the trailer it says only in theaters, February 26th, I'm like, okay guys, good luck with that. You guys in Tenet can sit together and talk about how that goes. Kids in the Hall, I didn't say, uh, somebody says Kids in the Hall is better than, Ch uh, better than Chappelle. I didn't say, I, Chappelle's still in the top three. You kick out Monty Python. You don't kick out Kids in the Hall. Kids in the Hall, one of the things that's most impressive about Kids in the Hall is that I would say, unlike any other show I can imagine, any other sketch show I can think of, you can watch an episode of the Kids in the Hall, and you can guess who wrote each sketch, and you will probably be right. If you watch the whole show and you like get the comedic sensibilities of the different act, the different uh, performers and, and, and writers... You see who like oh this is this is a this is a uh, Kevin and Dave sketch, oh this is one of those uh, uh, you know one man show Scott Thompson things, this is the weird sweaty experimental film that's Bruce McCullough, that's very cool to me. Monty Python has that too, but as I said, Monty Python is just it's streets behind as Pierce Horison would say. It is streets behind. Have I heard of Saturday Night Live? Pretty funny. I mean, yeah, it is. Come on. I thought Kevin and, uh, I thought, I always thought that Kevin and Dave collaborated on all those old-timey, like, kind of Abbott and Costello premise sketches. Like the one where it's Bob and Dave and they're, like, in a diner or something. Like the Citizen Kane sketch. Which is a great sketch. Citizen Kane! It was Citizen Kane! It was Citizen Kane! You need a mortician! Sudden eruptions of bloody violence is one of the best ways to get my comedic goat, I will admit. Uh, Tim and Eric is fantastic, but when I think of sketch shows, I sort of, like, when I try to think of, like, the archetypal and, and pinnacle sketch shows, I think of ones that conform to the sketch concept, you know? Like, I honestly feel like Tim and Eric is almost a liminal thing. It's not even really a sketch show. Like, those are not really sketches in the traditional sense. They do not have premises that play out in the way that sketches traditionally do. 
but it's fantastic. You, I mean, also formatively influential. Thirty. Uh, somebody says, when did SNL nosedive? SNL never nosedove anywhere. This is one thing that I will 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 uh, submit. It is as bad as it's ever been. I will I will stipulate. I just watched the Kevin Bateman, uh, Kevin Bateman, the the Jason Bateman episode from Saturday. I just watched that on uh, Monday and might be the worst one I've ever watched. But that's not because of some sudden collapse of quality. SNL, because it's been on the air nonstop for fucking 40 years, has the same entropic principle embedded within us that everything does. It's the same reason that Simpsons is terrible. Because it's still on. And so the, the, the quality degradation of SNL is not some drop. It is a steady decline with, you know, within it, it's, it's a trend downward that within it contains highs and lows, both within episode, both within sketches within episodes, episodes within seasons, seasons within tranches of seasons, but the trend line is down. And that's, that's anything over time will it show that trait because the energy at its it, beginning is being dissipated. And now in the specific context of a program, like a TV show, like The Simpsons or, or SNL, that, that Big Bang is like the premise, you know, the container, the creative container for the energies of the people making it. And that container has limitations. And over time, you hit the limits of them. And the way you avoid the show becoming bad is you stop making it. And when you don't stop making it, horrifying things happen. And you see this, like, New Simpsons is an abomination. And in fact, at this point, if you wanted to get logic-y on it, I think you could make a strong argument that The Simpsons is, on balance, a bad show. Because it has been actively bad for twice as long as it was good. And that means that just sheer, sheer volume of output if you're going to keep it as one thing, if you're going to say this is one show, and you can't really say it isn't because that's how all shows work. There's a name of a show, a premise of a show, it lasts, and then it's gone. This, you can say, ah, duh, chick, but like, nothing really changed, you know. It wasn't one thing. It wasn't one guy leaving. It wasn't Ship of Theseus. Uh, it's a Ship of Theseus. A Schwarzwelder was writing on like the 20th season or something. Like, the people who made it great were there. There's still guys who write for it now who wrote for it originally. Like, uh, Bob, what's the guy we had on the show? Me and Virgil interviewed. Uh, um, uh, fuck, what's his name? He's, he's been on since the beginning. Graining's still there. I, I, I've been to a Simpsons table read. We got invited to it. Mike Reese is his name. Mike Reese invited us to a Simpsons table read, and I got to see them do it, and it was a fucking amazing. And, but the thing is, but, uh, and... They were all there. Fucking Graining, was, uh, Graining wasn't there, but James L. Brooks was there. So there is a continuity. You can't say it's not the same product. What happened? Time passed. The thing that killed The Simpsons was not Ian Maxtone Graham or, da or Merkin or any or whoever people blame for, for, or Graining for selling out. It was only for allowing it to continue.
So if you if you compose the idea that The Simpsons, The Simpsons is a program, right? The Simpsons is a TV program. We're not going to talk about what dividing within it. It is a holistic thing, a television series that's been on for almost 40 years now. And it has a number of episodes within it which have different quality. If you look at it from remove and say, is this a good or a bad show? There is an argument to be made that semantically, like in the narrowest sense, it is a bad show. Because I subscribe very much to the notion that binaries are composed of infinite gradients, but for the purposes of denotation, uh, once a certain inflection point of attributes has been reached, the thing gains a characteristic that can use, be used to describe it by other people. Like that's how we get to language. It's the accumulation of traits. You reach, you have, like say X number, there's X number of traits. Once you reach Y, you enough of them have been uh, obtained that this counts as a thing we can say. So it's a show. Is it good? No, it's a bad show. It's a bad show. Put on a Simpsons random episode. It's probably going to be bad. And that's purely because they left it on, which is why getting mad at SNL for anything, or The Simpsons, for anything other than refusing to stop uh, is wrong. But the thing is, when you do that, you're not getting mad at The Simpsons creators. You're not getting mad at even Lorne Michaels. You're getting mad at capitalism. Once again, and for always, you're getting mad because the profit engine of the entertainment industry has dictated that these things should continue to go on. Our favorite shows that were great, a lot of times, we, we were protected from them being remembered as bad because they weren't profitable to make anymore. And they stopped making them before they got bad. That's like the capitalist regulator that, that can protect our good shows from turning into bad shows. Because that's the only real gatekeeper that we have in mass culture. Is, is profitability. So capitalism killed The Simpsons and killed SNL. Although with SNL, I would argue that it started at a much lower quality. Early at SNL is not that great. If you put on an average 1977 episode, even given the fact that comedy tastes change over time, there's like maybe a couple of good sketches there. It's just now there's no good sketches. None. And I would say that until recently, you could usually bank maybe one decent sketch an episode. And I think that only in the last couple seasons is that no longer the case. Yep, put more names in the Black Book of Capitalism. The main thing I resist in SNL discourse is try to to, um, is, is trying to validate any previous generation of SNL compared to the current one. It's just entropy that distinguishes them. And the reason for that is that I remember most of these things. Like in some way, I've watched a lot of this shit, and, and this, the real, the stuff that sticks is very rare. But one thing I know for sure is the close, the stuff you see when you're younger is going to stick more. And that means you will never be able to judge it accurately. You will never come close to being able to evaluate it because the stuff you remember liking, you have forgotten all the garbage. All the garbage just ran through your head. Unless it was so bad it was memorable, it just ran through the fucking uh, sewer grates into the, into the sewer and then floated away into your subconscious. 
what got stuck it, in the pan, in the gold pan, is stuff that you remember and remember enjoying, and remember to join with the with the simple-minded, uh, easy enthrallment of youth, which adds all sort of color and emotion to your memories, but are all positive. No modern thing will compare to that. But the thing is, with most stuff, you're not comparing one-to-one. -one. Whereas with Saturday Night Live sketches, you're comparing the same thing. And that means it'll never, ever, ever live up. And so no one can truly judge SNL uh, sketch comedy, or uh, quality. Because their memories, their comparative memories, are purely uh, just a collection of their greatest enjoy encounters with the show, which will by definition be when they were younger. I will say, though, that one of those things that's driving it bad is as politics gets more, uh, as culture gets more political, it's very bad for a show like that. Because topical political comedy is maybe the lowest form of comedy currently uh, popular. And that's not necessary, and that's, and that's only because of how ubiquitous politics is. And, I mean, there's a reason that we help create a genre of political comedy with Chapo, because... You know, we're funny, but I don't know if any of us would have made it through the gatekeepers of comedy to be able to be professionally humorous. What kind of gave us an entry point was that we had a relatable subject that people cared about and that we could triangulate our humor off of and that that would give us a hearing with people that we wouldn't get if we were just trying to hit people at a purely comedic register. So we were essentially cheating. We were stretching out the meatloaf, I'll admit. But the thing is, like, now people want that, so, you know... They were going to want it either way. I'd rather they get it for me. <laughs> I think what you can really pull from SNL is just the, like like a baseball team. And being a fan of SNL, like I've said before, is much more like being a fan of a baseball team than of a television show. You you don't. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. You know, it's your team, and you watch it, and you take a you keep your eyes open for talent, and you you know see it develop or whatever, or fail to develop. So the thing to remember is like uh, performers, like who who has stood out, you know, who who are, who are, uh, and one of the one of the real uh, signals of the current degradation is how thin the bench is talent-wise right now. SNL was never was never was not always this political. You'd have a you'd have a cold open you'd have a political cold open like. I don't now every every cold open is political and I don't think that used to be the case but then again I don't really I wouldn't have remembered a lot of them cuz cold opens usually aren't very good Spoken like a true Brewers fan indeed oh boy and I didn't want him to win the covid covid championship anyway There are, were some great old uh, uh, political sketches, though. And there was some kind of uh, subversive stuff. There was a sketch on... Uh, there was a classic Hartman-Ronald Reagan sketch at the, during the height of Iran-Contra, where the joke was is that he was pretending to be this doddering old man, but behind closed doors he was like the mastermind of a globe-spanning... Uh, money and gun laundering operation. 
And that's the kind of like coming at it from an angle thing that they've never been able to figure out in my in my um, like in my era in my like more recent memory of the show. They they very much get stuck on like a a play on the guy, and then they just run with it, and that means it's essentially the same sketch every week. I'd say Hartman was definitely like maybe the greatest Saturday Night Live cast member of all time in terms of all-around talent and, and crucialness to the show's success. One thing I will note that I said this before, they did it on last on Saturday show, is that they do they do recurring sketches, not recurring characters. The characters are unmemorable. It's the premise with a different skeleton of jokes. And it, that's what that's how you use a recurring character. It's this a recurring character is a premise essentially, and a skeleton to you for you to put more specific jokes on. Now they just have the premise without the character. They have not bothered to create characters people like because they know they can't. They know they can't get something over in the wrestling sense, the way that you could with like uh, the Richmeister or Wayne and Garth or, uh, or even like one of those Christian, one of those fifteen awful Christine, Kristen Wig, uh, recurring characters. None of them can get over a recurring character, so it's just the sketch over and over again. It's amazing. So the green is people. Now, Celebrity Jeopardy does not have character. First of all, Celebrity Jeopardy is like 10 years old now, and I'm talking about current SNL, so that's not even relevant. But secondly, Trebek isn't really a character in that sketch. He's basically a straight man. And impressions don't really count anyway. And it's not a very good impression. <coughs> Will Ferrell is definitely uh, one of the like top five, too. Farrell was Farrell held the same role of like uh, glue that Hartman did. He, he was less of an impressionist and more of a more of a wild man, but uh, it's a very similar, very similar position. Comedic point guard, I guess. Or no, I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about basketball. It is amazing to me that Keenan Thompson is still there. I believe he's been there for uh, 16, 17 seasons. I think this might be his 17th season. That's got to be that's got to be a record, right? Like Tim Meadows didn't stay that long. And I kind of respect it cuz I'm assuming what's happening there is that he has just like made the zen decision that okay, like this is my job. I'm not going to be famous. I'm not going to be a big star. I'm not going to have my own franchise. This is my job. Like, somebody works in an office. Somebody uh, digs ditches. I do these sketches. I'm, I like doing it. I have fun. 
better than real work, I'll just keep doing it. And I respect that. For Tim Meadows, he was there forever, but it was because he couldn't get a character. And he needed to get a character for him to do what they all did in the 90s at the height of the, like, right after Wayne's World when, like, every, every, uh, uh, every recurring character was a potential movie. And that meant a potential movie career. And when you saw what, like, Mike Myers went, it was like, oh, fuck. Farley. Even Dana Carvey before Master of Disguise. That was what they were all angling for. And, like, the last one to get it was probably Will Ferrell. Maybe Andy Samberg, but he was never really an SNL cast member. I guess. I don't know. It's weird. Because he was doing Lonely Island the same thing, and they're all Lonely Island movies. And it's, it's not quite as one-to-one -one as, like, I was a superstar in uh, the girl, Mary Catherine Gallagher, and now there's a movie about that. But he... He finally got The Ladies' Man, which had some pop and which people liked, even though I never thought Leon Phelps was that funny. And so, oh, God. And he goes and he makes the movie. And they're like, MacGruber, but that was a failure. Uh, and they go, oh, okay, what is this? Fails. And then he's got to hang around Hollywood. I mean, he's making it. He probably makes a living, but it's certainly less uh, stable than coming in and punching the clock. Whereas Keenan, he knows there's nothing out there. He's had projects. They've failed. I think he had a sitcom that like didn't go past the pilot or or like a cup first couple episodes, and so it's like here there be there be dragons. I'm gonna chill here, and as long as he's not tormented by that and doesn't think of it as a failure of some kind, as long as he's at peace with it, then he is he's the most successful SNL cast member ever. Bridesmaids doesn't count because it's not based on a recurring character. That's just somebody doing movies after they were on SNL. She had a million, it's, it's very interesting. Kristen Wiig had a million recurring characters. She was the last person to have a, like a real stable of recurring characters in the 90s tradition uh, in a, uh, of, of SNL. And when even though she did become a, a movie star in some way, they never made a goddamn one of them into a movie. That's how bad they all were. It was amazing how, how she was just being put on everybody. And I think like, they must have killed in studio because the thing is it doesn't matter what they put on people, it's, it's there people are going to watch it that's the secret of all of this that's the thing that that, uh, that Lauren knows that's the thing that has turned him into uh, a, a demon is he, he knows oh if they'll watch it whatever it is even if it's bad they'll watch it to talk about how bad it is the fact that it's on is why people watch it it has reached that level so they, they just took the fact that like it killed in the studio to mean, oh, everyone loves Gilly, and everyone loves the nervous Target uh, uh, cashier, and yet nobody even thought of putting those in, onto a movie screen. They had to do other shit, because it was like, this stuff is poison. And I'd say, that's it. That's been the last one. And the fact that like MacGruber, I think, is the last direct transition, and it failed, I, I don't think it's ever happening again. Ted Lasso just happened. Was Ted Lasso an SNL fucking character? Was Ted Lasso a Jason Sudeikis character on SNL? By the way, he's been off SNL for years now. I mean, just basic, basic stuff. I don't get you people. How, I mean, unless you're not, unless you're not trying to disagree with me, but it's a weird way to put it, I guess.
uh, David S. Pumpkins was insanely forced. Oh, guys. Okay. This is going to just be the SNL sketch one, but uh, this is just going to be the SNL uh, stream, but that's fine. It was bound to happen eventually. I'm having fun. Uh, this is a nice wind down from talking about political bullshit all day. Um, so the David S. Pumpkin sketch was actually one of those recurring premises I talked about. So like a year before that episode, Larry David hosted. And there was a sketch where it was a bunch of FBI recruits at Hogan's Alley doing the, uh, the target shooting where you have to distinguish between uh, threats and, uh, and uh, civilians. And they're like dummies that like come up with a gun and like they're animatronics basically. And some of them are uh, some of them are criminals to be shot and other ones are civilians not to be shot. And they pop up a few and they're normal. And then one of them pops up and it's Larry David in a uh, bright orange suit holding a big brick style '80s um, cell phone, wearing sunglasses. And he goes, "Hey, oh, fuck, what was his name?" God damn it, what was the character's name? Shit, this is literally going to kill me. Larry David. SNL. Brian, uh, Kevin Roberts. That was it. He goes, hey, I'm Kevin Roberts, and I'm the biggest bitch, I'm the smoothest bitch in town. And then the guy shoots him, and the, the trainer goes, why was that? And he goes, I was confused. And it's basically the David S. Pumpkins thing of, you're expecting one thing, then it's this weird off, uh, like off premise thing. Like, oh, David S. Pumpkins isn't really funny. This guy's not really either a threat, but he's also a weird. What? And then the person kind of like fig not figuring it out, uh, and um, and that's it. That is the sketch. And then David S. Pumpkins is the exact same sketch. It's just during Halloween, and it's popping out of the Halloween things instead of popping up from the. Uh, target range. The only big difference is one, you know, Tom Hanks, he's a legendary SNL host, uh, and it was, uh, and he's always going to be memorable a little bit when he's on the show. Like, his Black Jeopardy sketch was one of the few that kind of had, had legs uh, outside of the, the, you know, people who saw it in the immediate aftermath of its uh, airing. Uh, but then also the fact that it was a Halloween episode, and, hol and holiday episodes usually have a little more cultural resonance because it's one of those things that reminds us of the season, and then we talk about it to reaffirm that memory. Um, and then three, because it actually had a punchline, which is rare, very rare for any SNL sketch. SNL sketches almost never have punchlines now. They just set up the premise, do jokes about the premise, and then just stop. That's, that's been the, the model for SNL sketches for a very long time. I mean, it's, they've never been good at ending sketches. It's just not a part of the process of writing a sketch in six days. Like, that's the hard part, and you don't have time. So it makes sense that they just give up. But this one actually had a, a punchline. It was when they cut back to the couple after they don't see David Pumpkins with the dancing skeletons, he pops his head up and goes, any questions? And I go, ah. That's, aha, that's actually, like, Kevin Roberts doesn't do anything. He just, they just do it, do it, do it, and then quit. And for that reason, David S. Pumpkins popped and became a meme. But it was literally some fucking stepped-on, re-premised garbage.
Like these guys are literally just stepping on their own product in order to make the, the runtime. But I mean, the main problem with SNL at this point is the fact that it's written by the same college-educated um, soy creatures that every show is written by. Like, every show is the same voice. It is the voice of Twitter. Every show, every, every, every topical program, and increasingly even scripted, like, long-form stuff, like, for example, The Boys, is just the voice of Twitter one way or the other. And that is very enervating, and it's hard to enjoy anything like that. And yeah, like there's a factory that produces these people. Like they all go to college, like they all they all go from their middle class homes to a co nice college experience, or their upper class homes to a nice college experience where they learn how to express themselves and 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 uh, work together and not get me tooed. Then they go to UCB, it used to be uh, Second City, now it's UCB, and then they get caught and then they either write or they perform or some combination, and they're all just regurgitating the same fucking cud that they've been chewing on since they uh, grew up in like fuckburg uh, suburbs and then went to Sarah Lawrence or whatever the fuck. I mean, they're the same people. Like, this is a big country with a lot of different experiences. And these people are reproducing a comedic reply to almost the exact same experiences of living uh, a relatively unprecarious, urban, educated existence uh, that is mediated through that is heavily mediated and that is deeply uh, invested in a um, in a performative political self-conception which I mean liberalism which I mean broadly the Democrat brain and because of that nothing can be good Nothing can be good. You got that's why people got to go to stuff that's not going through these uh, gatekeepers to even come close to anything good. Uh, and I gotta say that I never really got Nathan for you, but having watched um, How to by John Wilson, which apparently was is on TV because Nathan Fielder discovered it, I'm I'm gonna have to go back and watch that show now because. Uh, Talking about how everything is bad and comes with the same voice. Uh, uh, that show, uh, How To with John Wilson, is, and the thing is, and this is where this is where singularity of vision comes in. You could very easily say to me, "Well, John Wilson is obviously one of the people you're talking about." Yes, he is. He is absolutely some middle class person, probably who went to college and then got a professional job in the city. Yes, and, and, and shares like a, a, the same like sort of mediated version of reality that we all do, like the self-created bubble of entertainment. But he's one guy, or like a few people who are like helping him, generating a, a relatively coherent, personalized comedic vision. What all these other shows are is a bunch of people who might have that in them, but by the fact that they're all having to work together on the same thing with the same parameters around it are not going to do anything other than redound to the lowest common denominator between them, which will be the most bland and tasteless and insipid version of that experience that they're all sharing. Whereas this is somebody who's having the same experience, but 
is able to express it. And the only reason I even found out about it is because Nathan Fielder, another guy who that is uh, true of, found it. Joe Perra is a guy like that, too. Like, none of these people don't fit the demographic profile of who I'm talking about. But they ch what's different is, is that they are able to articulate a personalized artistic comedic response. Oh man, Righteous Gemstones is so good. That's another small group of people. I mean, Connor O'Malley, of course, is another uh, absolute king in that regard. Now, of course, I'm saying a bunch of white guys because uh, that's who I see online because I'm a white guy. There are others. I have not seen them. I'm not denying their existence. The thing they will share, I will stipulate, is a, is a relatively co coherent and relatively personalized artistic comedic vision. Eric Andre is a, is, a, is a good example. Is the demiurge to the Gnostics what capital is to the proletariat? Yes. That's a perfectly encapsulated way to put it. Thank you. The demiurge, in the practical sense, is capitalism. We don't live in the world. We live in a simulated, reduced, bound version of the world that is, that's physical manifestation is generated by a spirit, a geist, an, a principle that drives everything, that drives the, uh, the maintenance and the uh, intensification of, of uh, human um, of human transformation of the environment. What's the code running our ever-expanding reordering of the material world around us? What is the thing driving us to build this world instead of the boundless world that it could be? Capitalism. But its structures are so real that they are as real to us as our bodies and as much of a, of a, of a um, prison as the materialist world is to the Gnostic, from, uh, as, as far removed from the real world, the real Pandora around us, as, as eternal union with God in heaven is to the Gnostic who lives in the material world. Someone put it very well just now in the comments. Right now, what capitalism is about is about uh, exploiting uh, the resources of the world using technology to produce capital, to produce surplus, surplus beyond the sustenance of the human race, which of course is then to be held by the, the holders of the capital that, that built it, the, whole, the, the owners. Under communism, what we're extracting and trying to pile up and distribute is time, is free time. Free time that is not in pain. Like, because, as I say, there's unalienated labor, but even unalienated labor sucks. Like, even, 
even though uh, cleaning your toilet is less alienating than being a janitor, it still sucks to clean a toilet. So that part, that like unpleasantness associated with being alive on Earth, that's going to be there. That's that that's part of work that is almost until you but uh, until you have technologically removed the need for it, it's still there. But the less the the, the, the point of like a human species working towards its own like greater betterment would be if we acknowledge that the goal of all this technological progress that we have, the goal of all of this economic activity that we're doing, that we're frenziedly doing, all of these scaffolds we're building, shout out John Wilson, should not be to build up fucking surplus to be held by people who, by virtue of a sucking literal magic trick, claim ownership to it. It would be to free people from unpleasant labor for the longest amount of time so that they could do things with that material world around them, with that technological understanding, with their understanding of other people, to build something and turn work, turn the time that isn't alienated in work, into art, into play. Both. Like, living under communism, living in an unalienated, technologically advanced society, uh, work has been replaced by art. Like, art can be unpleasant, too. Like, art has physical exertion and, and gunky parts. But art transcends chores, right? Transcends work. It actually takes the things that's gross and turns those gross things into more adherence to the task, more adherence to the moment. And eventually you get to a point where, where labor has been replaced by people literally spending their time on earth creating art. And until that point, playing. When that before you're able to transition the actual like working of the gears of social existence, like the actual growing of food and distribution of resources and maintenance of, of social order through uh, through coordination and and uh, you know infrastructure. Once that's taken care of, everything else is play. But then when you can turn the process of doing that, that of extracting, of giving people food, of, of giving power, of allowing for transfer of movement of people over time and place, over, over uh, technological innovation, then you have turned it into art. You've turned, you've turned work into art. That's the, that's, the, that's the alchemy that we're seeking. We are essentially alchemists. And that is the magical, that's the magical formula we're looking for. It's the one that turns work into play. I feel like I, on a personal level, have done that. I have performed the magic trick on myself. I have, I have, I have cast the spell and drank the potion. But now, having done that, the only, the only place my animal spirits can truly be satisfied is in the process of casting that spell on others, casting that spell across the world, as far as my, my powers can go, and they're not very far, I will have to join my magic with others, I will have to join my, 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 uh, my wand, I'll have to space dock with others.
I have to say, I definitely feel like I understand Alan, what Alan Moore was talking about in that episode a lot more than I used to. And I used to thought I kind of got it. Somebody says fictional characters. Uh, you know what? This is okay. Fictional character that best uh, reflects Obama. I would say the imagined viewer of a prestige television show, which is a fictional character, a character created by fiction, created by imagination. Hear me out here. You've got prestige shows, right? Prestige shows, because they're television shows, these aren't pure works of art. As much as we love to talk about guys like David Chase and, and, uh, and uh, Matthew Weiner as, as auteurs, it is a very collaborative process that is sh deeply enmeshed in a capitalist matrix of profitability related to its output. Like how many episodes of a show you get depends on people watching it. It depends on selling underwear and, and uh, light beer. Think about that. A movie is a movie. Here it is. Take it or leave it. A, a show isn't a show, really, until it's over. And how long it lasts, how much time you get to tell a story, how you get to tell it, is determined by how many people watch. Which is not determined by quality, as we all know. Quality is merely a part of it. What it mostly is, 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 a, uh, is an ability to hit people at a common denominator where enough of them are in, entertained that they want to keep watching. And with a prestige audience, what you do to find that out is you read the fucking recaps. Because the recaps before Twitter... The recaps were how the internet, like the hive mind of the internet, that like collective college-educated urban liberal, how they responded to stimuli and how they expressed themselves in the social media matrix, like barfing up. Now that we have the internet to literally embody and reflect the mind of our like creative class, we have the technology to hear the echo of the audience at a moment-by-moment -moment basis. We don't have to rely on fucking Nielsen ratings. We don't have to wonder about whether or not people are filling our name out in the book that they keep for like a $5 a month stipend from the Nielsen company. We get it in real time, the echolocation of people responding. And the, com the, uh, the recaps and comment sections in the early uh, internet websites, I would argue, are where people went to find out what these people wanted. And then they made these shows, Mad Men. Uh, the Sopranos. Uh, well, uh, the Sopranos really made it, first of all. But remember, the Sopranos could have been after, could have gone off the air after one season. The, the Sopranos were tacking off of the, the media response to them almost immediately because it became this huge phenomenon almost overnight. So they were never not captured. Like beyond the first season, everything that came later is fully enmeshed in this. So even the Sopranos count. Sopranos, Breaking Bad. Uh, the person viewing it that they divine through the response, first in the form of those recaps and the comments on recaps and then the Twitter conversation once Twitter enters into it, the viewer of that is a highly successful, because remember, we're after rich college-educated urban liberals. We're not after the ones who are paying back a million jillion student loans and running around gig, gig economy jobs. We want the ones with time and money to spend on the kind of products that we advertise and more importantly are willing to spend more for things like a streaming service or a cable channel then you can because the more of them we get the fewer of the everyone else we need 
So we want them as rich as they come who are still going to be sitting around watching television. So then we're, we're talking about people who, by definition almost, are professional class people. People who work a nine to five and come home and want to sit down and kind of vape out and because they're not able to jet ski around the world like a very, very rich person. And also there aren't that many of those people. So you're talking about upper middle class professionals of the urban milieu. And what do they create? They created psychopaths. They created Tony Soprano. They created uh, Walter White, Don Draper. They created psychopaths. Empty vessels of pure self-interest. Because that is who they saw in the mirror. That's who they saw in the reflected response to the show. To the shows. Because while the people writing about it aren't the most professionally successful ones, they wouldn't be writing recaps if they were, and they wouldn't be typing responses to recaps if they were. The, the people greenlighting stuff and making art in television can see past them to the richest versions of them. So I would say the, the imagined, the people who, the guys who created and wrote and, and, and directed the, the, creative direct, the creative shape of those early prestige TV shows, the people they had in mind subconsciously, is Barack Obama. It's Barfak Okrumbo. He is the he is the prestige television watcher in chief. And didn't it work? If Barack Obama watched the show and said, "Oh, I really like that Batman." Uh, uh, David Chase uh, the show uh, The Wire. It's uh, really good. It, guar it guaranteed an audience. It guaranteed money in the bank. So they've essentially conjured into being the guy that they had in mind. Like prestige television was essentially a giant black mass to summon this Beelzebub into existence to rule over us. More like Barf Sacco Crumbo. That's what I say. Yeah, Trump was summoned by television as well. Trump, summoned, Trump, was, Trump was in a mirror process. Trump was summoned by those people left to fend for themselves in network television after cable came along who had to figure out a way to keep these fucking rubes watching the over-the-channel uh, shows. Well, these are the people who don't have the money to watch HBO or cable. That means... By definition, we have a ceiling on how much we want to pitch to people because all of our ideas of what smart is comes from a college experience that people who don't have the money for cable tend to not have. So we can't speak to them. We don't know how to talk to them. We can only condescend to them. Well, we might as well say as few words as possible. Let's just train the cameras on them and let them entertain each other. Phew! And out of that process programming towards that the person they had in their mind the, the disgusting pig they had in their mind they summoned this other team 
to rule over us. So it's yeah the, the those are the those are now like the the, the warlocks. Those are those are the the antichrists who now rule. It's like it is like the second coming, only they're both the antichrists. It's it's revelation where they're both the bad guy. Which would make sense if you were a Gnostic, because that's not really God. That's Yelboeth. And who's this person? That's probably a, another conjured monster. That's it's it's he's there to keep you uh keep you in misery. Yeah, Trump was summoned into his place in the political firmament by an incantation of Barack Obama. Remember, he, it was him making fun of uh, Trump at the correspondence dinner that made him decide to run for president. Don't fucking the the, the high the, the dark lord himself spoke unto the world and brought forth a demon for him to battle and destroy the world with their thrashings. And the problem is, if that's our thesis and, and that's our antithesis, I cannot imagine any synthesis emerging that is not uh, an even more deeply uh, satanic monstrosity. Like, that would be like forming into... a. a Voltron, like blurbing into each other and creating a new monstrosity. Not good. No. Uh, our hope can be only that that that, like, synthesis that 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 dialectic between Trump and Obama is embedded within the larger dialectic of American politics and that a thesis antithesis will emerge to that. That is our hope. I mean, there is an antithesis emerging. The question is Will it gain um, the ability to resist and assert itself and build before we are pulled off of Rickenbach Falls into the misty waters below? That is a question for another time. Bye-bye.